This is the Rocky Mountain Review for Thursday, December 10th, 2020. I'm your host, Coda Babcock. And I'm Ivy Winfrey. And you're listening to KCSU Fort Collins. On today's show, Ellie Shannon will be updating you on campus and local news. Then we'll be hearing from KCSU Sports Director Dixon Lawson. Then we'll be hearing from researcher Matt McKillop about a new report that outlines how each state is prepared for the health impacts of climate change, and I'll be delivering some national news after that. Then, Ivy will be speaking with Instant Commander trainee Matt Champa about his experiences working on the Cameron Peak Fire firefighting efforts. To conclude the show, Coda will be giving some updates on COVID-19 and tech news, and I'll update us on the strange things happening in the world. Today is our last episode of the semester for the Rocky Mountain Review, and if you miss any episodes, we want to remind you that you can always listen after the show at kcsufm.com. Let's move right into campus and local news with our own Ellie Shannon. Hey guys, it's Ellie Shannon at KCSU. You're listening to my weekly newscast in this beautiful second week of December. CSU has announced that they will be offering a satisfactory or unsatisfactory grading option for fall 2020 classes only. The decision was made on December 4th to allow students the option during the pandemic. Not only that, but the university is also offering for students to withdraw late by December 11th, which is the last day of regular classes. Poudre School District Superintendent Sandra Smizer announced that she will be retiring in January after seven and a half years. A Monday morning news release from the district stated that the board has concluded that a change in leadership is in the best interest of the district, but that Dr. Smizer's agreement to an early retirement illustrates her unselfishness and desire for the district to attract quality superintendent candidates. In the meantime, two PSD administrators, Tom Lambert and Scott Nielsen, will take on the duties until a new permanent superintendent is found which the district is hopeful that person will be found by July 1st. Fort Collins Police Services announced a new plan for a new community advisory group. In October, FCPS said they will be making a more strategic plan to better align agency efforts with the needs of the community. Leaders identified the benefits of forming an external group advisory to help communication, outreach, and service to improve. More information and opportunities to get involved will be made available early 2021. The Rams will be taking on the Utah State Aggies in their last football game of the 2020 season this Saturday, December 12th, so make sure to tune into that. And make sure to listen to the Rocky Mountain Review with Coda and Ivy on Tuesdays and Thursdays from 4 to 5 p.m. And thank you so much for listening to KCSU. I'm Ellie Shannon, and this is 90.5 FM. You just heard uh, from Ellie Shannon with local and campus news. Up next, we'll be hearing from KCSU Sports Director Dixon Lawson. But first, we're taking a quick break. There is nothing to listen to. Hold up. What time is it? It's almost 5. Quick. Put it on 90.5. It's almost time for the 3.0 radio show. What's that? It's this crazy, fact-filled, genre-bending two hours of radio madness. Hey, everyone. If you like incredible music from every genre and learning interesting facts, join me, Carter Minner, next on the 3.0 Radio Show, where we have nothing but fine melodies and fascinating facts.
And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. Now for the RMR Sports Report from Dixon Lawson. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Dixon Lawson, and you're tuned in to the RMR Sports Report for Thursday, December 10th. First, we'll start off with a little bit of recap. Going back to Tuesday, women's basketball was back at home playing their third game in a row against San Diego State. Um, they were winners in that game, 86-77. to 77. So just like the other two games, it has been very, very close. Moving on to today, game four, tip-off was scheduled for 1 p.m. So while I don't have any updates on that currently, I will have an update if you tune in to Ramblers tonight, 7 to 9 on 90.5 KCSU FM. I will have an update on that game. And last but not least, let's look forward to Saturday. Uh, CSU football will be taking on Utah State back here at home, so be sure to get out and support the Rams. And with that, that will do it for the RMR Sports Report. I've been Dixon Lawson, and I wish you all a great rest of your you day. Just heard Dixon, you just heard from Dixon Lawson about what's happening in sports. Before that, we heard from Ellie Shannon about campus and local news updates. If you miss any part of the show, feel free to tune in after our show today on kcsufm.com news. Up next, we're going to be hearing from researcher Matt McKillop about a new report that outlines how each state is prepared for the health impacts of climate change. But first, we're going to take a quick break. back on the Rocky Mountain Review. Now, Ivy is going to be speaking with Matt McKillop about climate change. So today I am joined by Matt McKillop, uh, the senior researcher at the Trust for America's Health, here to talk with us about a new report released today by John Hopkins University and the Trust for America's Health detailing the preparedness of all 50 states in dealing with the health impacts of climate change. Mr. McKillop, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So, the report is about the health impacts of climate change. Um, what sort of health impacts are we talking about? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, why don't I start off here? You know, I think we often uh, think of, of climate change as something we'll face uh, down the line, but uh, the reality that we see is that it's here now, and uh, there's uh, ample uh, evidence to suggest and, and a clear scientific consensus that uh, the climate is changing and will continue to change for at least the next several decades. So we need to act. Now, uh, the question is, and the one you pose is, how does that affect uh, public health? I think the way to think about uh, the effect climate change has on health is that it turbocharges long-standing dangers. So uh, some climate-related events, such as hurricanes and wildfires, have obvious health impacts. 
and others are a bit more insidious, you know, including more frequent heat waves and deteriorating air quality, uh, chronic flooding and waterborne diseases, etc. Of course, these threats have always existed, but climate change exacerbates them and also expands uh, the regions and the populations that are at risk. On top of all this, all of these effects uh, can take a severe toll on mental health and well-being. That's something we need to be mindful of. I think another critical point uh, is that uh, these effects aren't felt equally. You know, certain populations or communities are at highest risk, uh, depending on various factors, ranging from environmental factors to social factors, uh, demographic factors, uh, as well as people's uh, communities' level of preparedness. So just to give you some examples, uh, high-risk populations include children and older adults, people with pre-existing medical conditions, people who work outdoors or as first responders, uh, and large portions of other groups, such as immigrants, uh, people of color, people living in poverty, or people experiencing homelessness. And in many cases, vulnerability uh, to these health impacts reflect existing health risk factors and disparities. And in the US, the legacy and continuation of structural and systemic racism contribute to these disparities. That, uh, that brings up uh, another point I wanted to ask about. So uh, the report is outlining the different uh, vulnerability of all 50 states. So what um, you already explained a bit of the demographics. What metrics were you using to determine uh, the vulnerability of various states to climate change? Mm -hmm. uh, so we, we looked at vulnerability uh, kind of across two main dimensions. Um, uh, one uh, touched on, uh, it has to do with environmental factors. And, and they're the ones uh, that would probably come uh, to mind for most people. Uh, factors such as extreme heat, uh, flooding, uh, exposure to wildfire, severe storms such as hurricanes. Uh, the other dimension we looked at uh, focuses more on uh, social and demographic factors. So uh, things like poverty, uh, things like the age composition of a state, you know, the relative number of, of older adults and, and, and very young children in the state, uh, the education level of the residents of the state. All of this mixes together uh, to form a, a more complete and a fuller picture of vulnerability. So the report is, uh, uh, like I said before, uh, concerned with uh, states in their amount of preparedness for the impacts of climate change. So what metrics did you use to determine preparedness? Yeah, so uh, again, we, we tried to take a, a comprehensive look. So we looked at this in a couple of ways. Uh, one was to really kind of uh, hone in on uh, what you could sort of consider as core public health preparedness. So, so these are kind of the nuts and bolts infrastructure uh, that you would, you would want to have in place for all kinds of threats, including those uh, tied to climate change. So this is uh, factors like uh, readiness to uh, manage uh, an emergency and uh, you know, to help uh, share information and to coordinate across uh, state agencies and so on. You know, this, is, this is important. Uh, and it's going to transcend the type of emergency uh, that a place uh, faces. Another is the readiness of a, of a healthcare system to uh, ramp up 
uh, in a targeted way uh, in the event of an emergency. And obviously, uh, unfortunately, we're seeing the need for that right now uh, with the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, another uh, element there has to do with health surveillance and uh, being able to comprehensively monitor across the state uh, to be able to see the early signs of uh, growing, uh, growing threats. Uh, so that's, that's kind of one piece of preparedness. The, the other piece uh, is a little more specific to uh, climate-related uh, adaptation. And uh, you know, there, there's two main ways uh, that the world and, and in, indeed every state uh, needs to go about uh, approaching the, uh, the effects of climate change. One, of course, uh, is to try and uh, bring down our greenhouse gas emissions. Um, but uh, because of past emissions, we know uh, that the climate is changing now and climate change is here now and that it's going to continue to change uh, for several decades going forward. So uh, no matter what, we're going to have to adapt uh, to a certain extent. And what we looked at was specifically uh, kind of a checklist of activities to see what a state has done in a documented way uh, to plan uh, for climate-related uh, impacts. So uh, actions like uh, identifying specifically what are the climate threats that are going to be most acute uh, for the state, which residents in the state are uh, most vulnerable, uh, why they're most vulnerable, and also where they're located. Uh, and then once uh, that has been done in a comprehensive way, beginning to identify uh, the interventions that can be taken uh, to help uh, protect people and to do that in a way that is evidence-based. All right, uh, so now that we've talked about your methodology, let's um, talk a little bit about your findings. So how is it looking nationwide? How prepared is the United States for protecting its citizens uh, against climate change? And um, what states are the least and most prepared for it? Mm -hmm. uh, so we, we found a mixed picture. Uh, you know, while every state uh, has engaged in at least some level of planning and preparation, uh, there was significant variation. And uh, in many places, a great deal of room for improvement. Of greatest concern uh, from our analysis is that states with the highest levels of vulnerability, uh, which are predominantly located in the Southeast, tended to be among the least prepared. And of course, that's, what, uh, that's the opposite of what you would wanna see uh, uh, for in the interest of, of the residents of those states. What sort of actions should states be taking and what sort of actions should the nation be taking in order to uh, become more prepared? Yeah, well, uh, I think you're absolutely right to uh, bring up both of those levels of government and I would add uh, local governments as well. You know, states were the focus of our research, uh, but this work requires uh, action at every level of government, and they all need to work uh, in partnership to protect Americans. Uh, but uh, just to talk about states for, for a moment, um, I think every state needs to do several things to be ready. Uh, one is uh, to strengthen uh, the, their public health systems and their preparedness for health emergencies. Uh, of course, this needs to be done uh, with close and, and ample support uh, from the federal government. 
and I think, unfortunately, the COVID-19 pandemic uh, has been a tragic reminder of this. Second, uh, every state needs to make preparations for climate change a priority across their agencies, and especially in their health departments. And when they do, they need to engage in thorough, systematic planning uh, based on guidance from the CDC and other experts. So what does this entail? Uh, it includes uh, determining specifically how climate change is impacting residents, who's most vulnerable, why, and where they live. Uh, it means assessing and implementing interventions uh, to better protect people. It means having a process to continuously evaluate that planning and to make refinements over time. And then ultimately, uh, overarching all of this, it's really important uh, that officials uh, plan with communities and people who are at highest risk, and not just for them, because uh, these are the people who are the best experts about what they need. And so they need to be engaged in a leadership role in this planning. So I did look at the report, and among some of the states that were listed the most prepared, um, Colorado was uh, among them. We are a Colorado radio station. Um, what kind of stuff are states like Colorado, uh, really prepared states, doing right that other states should be doing? Yeah, you're absolutely right. So the, I think the good news uh, is that Colorado, according to our analysis, is both less vulnerable uh, than most states uh, to the health impacts of climate change, and more prepared, which is exactly uh, uh, where a state would want to be uh, relative to others. Um, having said that, you know I, I do want to emphasize that every state, including those that we found to be most prepared, uh, have room for improvement, and, and that's important that every state continue to make it a focus. In terms of what states are doing uh, to be ready, you know I think. It really ties back to those uh, factors we uh, discussed, uh, both uh, making sure that uh, the, the kind of nuts and bolts infrastructure of uh, its public health uh, system and its preparedness system are as strong as possible, uh, both from a staffing standpoint, uh, a funding standpoint, and the capabilities they need to be able to identify and respond to a whole range of emergencies. And then when it comes to uh, climate-related emergencies and being ready to adapt to those, it really is uh, about following, you know, kind of a step-by-step -step, uh, systemic framework. And this follows guidance that the CDC provides, which, which really uh, means, you know, carefully uh, honing and specifically uh, at the state level to understand you know, of, of the whole range of threats uh, posed by climate change, which are most acute and germane to our state. And then once we know that, which residents uh, are, are likely to be most impacted by that, why, and, and where do they live? And with that information, a state, can, a state and working with its localities, of course, can really begin uh, to, uh, to, to get a better grasp of, okay, what are the interventions that would be most effective and most relevant uh, to the experience that we're likely to have. And then, of course, to, to begin to, to put those into motion and, and to monitor their effectiveness. What do you think the biggest takeaway should be from this report? Uh, you know, I think one big takeaway uh, is uh, 
that we often think of climate change as something we'll face down the line. Uh, but the reality is that it's here now. Uh, the, the science is clear that climate change is happening now. And uh, regardless of what we do uh, with our emissions in the near term, uh, we're, the, the climate is going to continue changing for at least the next several decades. So uh, we need to begin to adapt uh, now, even as we work to bring down uh, our emissions. And uh, from an adaptation standpoint, it's, it's clear that there are uh, very important and uh, very dangerous health impacts uh, related to our changing climate. And while some states are more vulnerable than others and some states are more prepared than others, and Colorado uh, tends to, to, to fall in, a, in an area uh, on that spectrum that uh, a state would wanna be, every state uh, has room for improvement. And every state uh, needs to double down uh, to make this a greater priority and an area of focus. Where can our listeners uh, find the report for themselves? Uh, so the report can be found on our website, uh, which is uh, tfah.org. That's tfah.org. All right, that is all I have. Uh, again, I am speaking with Matt McKillop, Senior Researcher at the Trust for America's Health. The full report titled Climate Change in Health, Assessing State Preparedness releases today. Mr. McKillop, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. On October 8th, the CSU, Department of English Creative, Writing Reading Series will feature the literary work of Lorna D. Cervantes. Cervantes is the author of five award-winning books of poetry. Her readings will be live-streamed via Zoom at 7 p.m. More information on this event and upcoming authors in the Creative Writing Reading Series can be found at english.colostate.edu slash events. And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. Let us know what your favorite holiday tradition is by calling us and leaving a voicemail at 970-491-2388 or tweet us at KCSUFM on Twitter. Next up is National News with Coda Babcock. Until Their Home is a Fort Collins-based nonprofit dedicated to reducing the homeless pet population. For approved applicants, they offer behavioral support, supplies, pet sitting, dog walking, and temporary fostering. Until Their Home is also offering rehoming counseling and provides home-to-home rehoming services. They also support Colorado shelters through their Find a Foster program, where they provide a path to adoption for those struggling in shelters. Learn more at untilhome.org. I'm Coda Babcock, and this is National News Highlights for December 10th. The U.S. House of Representatives have approved temporary funding to prevent a government shutdown as they continue to work on a spending deal and an economic stimulus package. According to Claudia Grisales of National Public Radio, Friday was the original deadline for the spending plan, but the temporary measure allows for an extension. The measure was approved with a 343-67 vote in the House and is then heading to the Senate. If passed, it will be sent to the President's, most likely by tomorrow at the latest, to be signed before the deadline. 
This is the second stopgap measure or continuing resolution to be approved by Congress for the 2021 fiscal year. Stopgap measures are done primarily when legislators can't come to an agreement but are facing deadlines for bills and measures. Congress people are planning to make progress on another COVID-19 relief measure, which may be part of the budget. Richard Shelby, the chairman of the Senate Appropriations Committee, says that both parties are around 95% done with their planning for the spending bill, but that the remaining 5% is incredibly difficult to complete. Hostility towards mask mandates in the United States have continued, despite the price smaller cities and towns are paying as a result of COVID-19 surges. According to the Associated Press, in many states, tensions are beginning to cause emotional and physical harm to public health officials and politicians associated with the new mandates. In states without mask mandates, individual counties are trying to curb the new influx of hospitalizations, with some backlash from people who are against wearing masks. In one instance in South Dakota, the Rapid City mayor said that city council members were being harassed and threatened over a proposed mask requirement that failed to pass despite several spikes in the state's hospitalization rates. A man has been sentenced for participating in a neo-Nazi plot to threaten and intimidate journalists. According to Laurel Wamsley of NPR, Johnny Roman Garza, a 21-year-old man from Arizona, has been sentenced to 16 months in prison for his participation in the plot. He's one of three members of Ottomwaffen Division who conspired to harass journalists who exposed anti-Semitism in their writing. In one instance, he placed a poster on a Jewish magazine editor's window that depicted a burning home with a Molotov cocktail and a warning that said, you have been visited by your local Nazis. Garza also attempted to do the same to a black journalist, but couldn't find a place to put the poster since the residence was an apartment complex. He pleaded guilty to conspiracy to mail threatening communications, conspiracy to commit cyberstalking, and conspiracy to interfere with a federally protected activity. The sentence of 16 month months is half of what was recommended by prosecutors. Other members of the neo-Nazi group Garza was associated with have been linked to murders in three states. That's all for National News Highlights. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. We'll be right back. Now, Ivy will be speaking with Incident Commander trainee Matt Champa about his experiences working on the Cameron Peak Fire firefighting efforts. Uh, today, I am joined by Matt Champa, an Incident Commander trainee and part of the team working on the efforts to put out the Cameron Peak Fire, which recently reached 100% containment. He's here to talk with us today about his experiences working on the fire. Matt, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So first off, uh, would you be able to explain to our audience uh, what uh, your role personally was in the uh, firefighting efforts and how long you've been involved with the efforts? Um, yeah, so my role um, kind of spanned the entire uh, timeline of the, the fire. I was actually the first uh, resource, first person on scene on the ground anyways uh, on August 13th. And um, and then I fulfilled, a, uh, you know, seven I uh, different roles throughout the course of the fire, not all, not the entire time uh, physically on the fire. Um, and then most currently, I came back to the fire on an incident, ma local incident management team as the IC uh, uh, type three uh, trainee, which we're uh, finalizing a few things for the fire uh, currently. 
what was the like general feeling in morale uh, among people working on the fire, um, especially uh, in the parts where it was looking like? Uh, uh, were there any points where it felt like it was uncontainable? Um, oh yeah, <laughs> I mean, essentially, you know, day one, uh, I knew you know that this was going to be a long, long-term event, long-duration event, and. I think most firefighters realize that as well, um, uh, unless you're, you know, new to the scene, new to firefighting. But anybody with any sort of experience, especially given um, how fire seasons work nowadays, realize that uh, most fires uh, of, of this uh, magnitude are going to be a long duration. And so I would say uh, overall, um, the feelings you know, from the firefighting side of things are just to, you know, business as usual, to be honest. And I don't think, you know, folks, I don't honestly think they felt that it was going to last maybe this long. I mean, especially local, local resources, but, you know, certainly given what fire seasons do nowadays, people aren't surprised. Um, so um, I, I think morale is, is good throughout, you know, people really focus on their job and, and, you're so focused that after 14 days, it goes by quick and then you get, you know, two days off and then you're back for 14, whatever the case may be. And certainly in morale is, is uh, you know, people, it's business, business as usual. How was it having to deal with this already massively stressful situation during this extremely stressful year, you know, with COVID, did it like exacerbate things? Yeah, well, that, um, so, you know, we talk about fire seasons and the new normal, you know, with these extreme fire seasons, quote, unquote, um, but you throw in COVID and that certainly adds an element of, uh, you know, something that's new to, to, well, to society, essentially. So trying to manage day-to-day -day operations and really basic functions out in the field, uh, you know, is, it, is, it's tough. It's, it's difficult to do that. Um, Firefighting is, you know, very interactive, interpersonal. So when when folks are are used to doing the interpersonal interactions to to brief someone or to to, uh, to you know get involved tactically in, in the fire and do the actual work, you know, it, it's a teamwork thing. So so that is a it was probably the biggest struggle um, for folks, I, I would say, for myself especially. And uh, um, it, it continues to this day, um, even at ICP here in Hilton, where we're just you know hanging out, taking care of documentation. You're surprised at what you have to to uh, take into account uh, when we you consider COVID. But you know, out in the field, it changes how how you do things, and um, and you know, there's an eye towards safety. And I think uh, biggest takeaway from COVID. Is that we can still do this job um, it's maybe not quite the same um, as we're used to but we can do it safely and um, i think COVID is is something that will probably we'll learn a lot a lot of lessons on what we do from having to deal with COVID in firefighting when was the moment where you felt that you're finally going to be able to contain the fire and how how did that feel for everybody well, so I, you know, I, when containment happened, I wasn't actively working on the fire. Um, and, you know, just using my knowledge, 
I would have guessed that, you know, well, I, I can't speak for folks specifically, but you know, you work toward a common goal like this and, and you know containment is is coming. You can you can feel when when you know all the pieces kind of fall into into place. And and um, you know, I think people are relieved, obviously, um, but they're also looking for the next looking to the next step when you reach containment. Um, on these large fires, we call things contained, but on the same uh, on the same token, there's a lot more work to do. And you know, containment is you don't want to put a rubber stamp on it and say, "Hey, we're done. We've reached 100% containment." Um, so I think people like to see containment. Firefighters, anyways, they once you get to that point, it's a relief, but it's also you know you got to keep things in perspective and know that um, anything can happen. I mean, we saw that. You know, when it snowed on the fire, I think I, I got a lot of um, feedback from friends that are like, oh, well, it snowed seven, eight inches. We're good, right? I mean, or, or we're close to being good. And, and you don't want to commit to saying, yeah, yeah, we're, yep, we're where we need to be. You know, it's really a good time to, to pause, reevaluate, and know that the fire could, is still going to, you know, have some life to it. So recent final containment was great. And even still to this day, we keep, uh, you know, we keep our situational awareness up to uh, make sure that, you know, not, you know, that we're going to meet control status and then finally out status. But uh, yeah, it, it could take a, take a while. Were there any particularly inspiring moments that you experienced over the course of the firefighting effort? Any moments that you thought were particularly memorable? Well, uh, I think for myself, and, you know, I can't speak for others, obviously, but for, you know, speaking specifically for myself, I'm a local uh, district resource. So, you know, this is my forest, this is my district. And so you're, you're intimately familiar with a lot of the communities and the, and the, and the ground out there. Um, uh, we were involved with a burnout. So where we had to protect uh, the Arrowhead Lodge, which is a visitor, a forest service, our forest service visitor center uh, in Poudre Canyon. And the, the fire was making a, making a run at, at the visitor center. And we were able to, uh, to get down and, and protect that visitor center. Um, probably I was inspired because it's a cool building. It's a very historic, you know, and, and it means a lot to folks in the canyon and, and to the Forest Service folks too. Um, and so it was nice to be able to, to protect that, that building, that infrastructure, um, being able to do it with, with the guys that I work with uh, on a daily basis, um, amongst a lot of other other firefighters, having that local knowledge and and guys in action, you know, when you train for this, you know, uh, a lot. It's nice to see that all those plans come into play and, and have success. So that was inspiring to me. And for my final question, now that it's been 100% contained, I know you said you don't want to put a rubber stamp on the effort, so to speak, but how is it feeling, how is it looking um, for future firefighting efforts uh, when to finally uh, end the fire? Um, as far as the camera peak fire, speaking to the camera mm -hmm. peak? Um, yeah, I, you know, I think just by the sheer magnitude and size of the fire, um, we'll be watching the fire. I mean, at the very least, you know, it's, 
Um, not something we're going to walk away from, even probably through the winter when it gets a, a lot of snow and come next spring when we probably revisit it. Um, the efforts, as far as where we're at right now, we're, you know, we're confident, you know, we've been here before, we're confident in that the, there won't be obviously any, any growth, um, confident, but not, wouldn't be surprised, you know, if, if we need to take action on, you know, maybe initial attack fires in the area and, uh, other, other issues, uh, associated with just fighting fire on the front range, um. It's dry out now, it continues to be dry. Um, camera peak fire is looking good, but we have to turn, uh, uh, move to that next phase or, or return to the next phase of, of uh, you know, taking uh, action on initial attack fires uh, if and when they occur during the course of the winter. And that's our reality anymore, as you know, I mentioned fire season, but really it's, it's year round, especially on the front range. So I think that's where we're, where we're at that's our mindset right now um and the camera fire you know i think the, hopefully the public knows that uh we just don't drop leave this even when all the incident management teams move on um we'll have folks from the local area continue um because they've been there from the start uh continue to to take care of the camera peak fire all right that's all i have Again, I am speaking with Matt Champa, incident uh, commander trainee and part of the team working on the efforts to put out the Cameron Peak Fire. Matt, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Ivy. You just heard from incident commander trainee Matt Champa about his experiences working on the Cameron Peak firefighting efforts. Now for COVID-19 updates. I'm Coda Babcock, and this is COVID-19 updates for Thursday. Colorado State University has a total of nearly 1,700 cumulative cases of COVID-19 since May of this year. The university is starting to get over the spike seen in the past two or in the few weeks following Halloween. Larimer County has nearly 12,000 cases of COVID-19 and 85 deaths due to the virus. There have been 203 recorded outbreaks, and the county remains at a high-risk score. On the state-style framework, Larimer County is in level red, which means that the county is at an extreme risk for COVID-19. There have been 233 new positive cases in the past 24 hours, and every day in the past two weeks has seen more than 15 new cases per day. Eight days in the past two weeks have seen over 10% of tests come back positive, and the, and the county's case rate is at 804 per 100,000 residents. There are 100 COVID patients in Larimer County hospitals, and hospital usage is at 71%, while ICU usage has reached 85%. While CSU is starting to get over a spike, Larimer County's cases have not gone down by much since Thanksgiving. The state of Colorado is now preparing for the distribution of a COVID vaccine. The state has over 272,000 cases and over 3,600 deaths among cases. Around 1.9 million people have been tested for COVID-19 in the state. New information on the vaccine, as well as tips for those who will be traveling home for the holidays, are all available at covid19.colorados.gov. The United States continues to set new records for daily cases. There are over 15.5 million cases of COVID-19 in the U.S., and over 291,000 people have died as a result of the virus. On December 9th, cases increased by over 218,000, and deaths increased by just over 3,000, with hospitalizations reaching over 106,000 nationwide. In the past two weeks, cases have gone up by 19%, deaths by 36%, and hospitalizations by 21%. 
The Midwestern U.S. continues to be hit severely by the pandemic, especially in smaller towns and cities where COVID-19 restrictions were previously seen as less needed than in larger cities. Information for this segment comes from Colorado State University, Larimer County, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, National Public Radio, and the Centers for, the Centers for Disease Control in the New York Times. Currently, the only ways to protect yourself and those around you include wearing a mask, staying home when possible, keeping social distance when leaving the house, and washing your hands for at least 20 seconds. In addition to this, people who are feeling sick need to stay home unless leaving to receive testing or necessary medical care. For more information on COVID-19, you can visit cdc.gov coronavirus. I'm Coda Babcock, and that's all for COVID-19 updates. You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. Now for tech news. Former cybersecurity chief Christopher Krebs is suing the Trump campaign for defamation. According to Brian Naylor at National Public Radio, Krebs was fired by President Trump in November, five days after Krebs said that the recent election was, quote, the most secure in American history, end quote. Krebs was the director of cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency within the Department of Homeland Security prior to being fired. The case says that Krebs was defamed by attorney Joseph DiGenova, the Trump campaign, and Newsmax when DiGenova went on Newsmax and said that, the tr- that Krebs should, quote, should be, quote, shot at dawn, end quote, following his statement about the security of the election. The lawsuit has been filed in a circuit court in Montgomery County, Maryland, and the punishments said by DiGenova are, quote, the fate of a convicted traitor, end quote. By describing this process, Krebs says that the, par- the three parties responsible for the message spreading are responsible for defamation by making him appear to be a traitor to the United States with no real evidence. Krebs was a victim of death threats following the statements made by DiGenova, and DiGenova claims that he was just being hyperbolic. Sundar Pichai, Google's CEO, has apologized for firing a black scientist after sending a critical email to other employees for the company's treatment of people in color and women in the hiring process. According to Bobby Allen of National Public Radio, Timnit Gebru is the, science, the scientist involved, and her criticism came after an argument over a research paper. More than 2,000 employees of Google signed a letter, an open letter following her dismissal and accused Pichai of research censorship and retaliation. In an email to Google employees, Pichai said, quote, I've heard the reaction to Dr. Gebru's departure loud and clear. It seeded doubts and led some in our community to question their place at Google. I want to say how sorry I am for that, and I accept the responsibility of working to restore your trust, end quote. Facebook has been accused of illegally removing competition by buying its rival companies. According to Cecilia Kang and Mike Isaac at the New York Times, the Federal Trade Commission is currently bringing a lawsuit against Facebook with the help of more than 40 states. Facebook has purchased Instagram and WhatsApp in order to eliminate competition on social media and in messaging softwares. Instagram was purchased for $1 billion, and WhatsApp was purchased for $19 billion within two years of each other. The deals with these two companies have asserted Facebook's dominance over other tech companies and prevented new competition from being able to gain any dominance. The lawsuits are combined, but have been filed in the U.S. District Court in Washington, D.C., and are intended to create a more fair economy by eliminating strict monopolies. Google, Amazon, Facebook, and Apple hold a strong grip over the U.S. economy, which means that the tech giants have an unfair balance of control compared to smaller companies. The efforts to fight against monopolization through this lawsuit and policymaking are backed with bipartisan support. Prosecutors in one case said that Facebook should break off from Instagram and WhatsApp, and that there will be new restrictions for similar deals.
That's all for Tech News. We'll be right back with Weird News with my co-host, Ivy Winfrey. My name is Ivy Winfrey, and sometimes we need to get a little weird with it. So here's some of the weirdest stories I've found from around the world today. Two California megachurches have rebranded themselves as strip clubs in order to avoid coronavirus lockdown. According to Joel Abbott at DRSIN News, earlier this month, a California judge ruled that strip clubs have a First Amendment right to reopen while churches are forced to remain closed. In response, former Arkansas Governor Mike Huckabee said on Fox News that churches should reopen as quote-unquote temporary strip clubs, and two churches have done exactly that. Awaken Church in San Diego and Godspeak Cavalry Chapel in Thousand Oaks both rebranded themselves as family-friendly strip clubs in protest of California's coronavirus rulings. Pastor Jurgen Mathesius of Awaken Church posted a video on Instagram in which he removed his tie and declared that the removal of the tie made their church a strip club. Pastor Rob McCoy of Godspeak Cavalry Chapel did a similar tie removal before stating that the state-mandated lockdowns are quote-unquote tyranny. Both McCoy and his church have suffered numerous penalties for ignoring government orders in recent months. The legality of this strip club rebanding remains to be seen, and the churches may both face further, further penalties. A Zambian woman has sued her boyfriend for maintaining their relationship for eight years without marrying her. According to Victor Otengo at Tuco News, 26-year-old Gutrode Nagoma told a Zambian court that she had gotten tired of waiting to get married to Herbert Sakalaki, 28, who promised to wed her. The couple had a child together, but after eight years of being together, she decided to sue him because he did not have any plans for their future, and because she believed he may be unloyal because she discovered he was friends with another woman. In his defense, Herbert said that he was not in the right financial position to afford a wedding and also blamed Nagoma for not giving him needed attention. The judge presiding the case advised that both reconciliation was the best way to go and that there was no evidence of any marriage yet and thus no actual legal contract that would bind them to any obligation. Dr. Anthony Fauci, the nation's top immunologist, said in an interview that Santa Claus is immune to the coronavirus and COVID-19 won't be stopping him this holiday season. According to David Williams at ABC7 News, Dr. Fauci explained in an interview with USA Today that Santa is immune to the coronavirus. Fauci said, quote, Santa is exempt from this because Santa, of all the good qualities, has a lot of good innate immunity. Further, COVID-19 won't be stopping NORAD from tracking Santa's Christmas Eve sleigh ride. The North American Aerospace Defense Command, which is responsible for protecting the skies over the U.S. and Canada, said it'll be ready to follow Santa on December 24th as he flies from the North Pole to visit children's houses all over the world. This will be the Santa Tracker's 65th anniversary. It dates back to a typo in a 1955 Sears ad in an Air Force officer 
who is now known as the Santa Colonel. NORAD was even able to keep the tradition going during the 2018 government shutdown. Normally, hundreds of volunteers staff a special call center at Peterson Air Force Base in Colorado Springs, Colorado, to update children who call 1-877-HI-NORAD from all over the world on Santa's location. This year, there will be a smaller number of volunteers awaiting calls to reduce the potential risk of spreading the virus. And that's the last of the weird news I have for today, and this year. I'm Ivy Winfrey, and you're listening to Rocky Mountain Review on 90.5 KCSU. Remember to stay weird. We'll be right back. Girl, I'm feeling some college radio vibes. Oh, I got you, BB. You know that college radio is more than just the Coachella lineup, right? It's also like metal, and sports, and EDM, and news, and jazz, and KCSU where college radio is more than just college radio. And now for the weather. The weather today has been pretty cool with a high of 43 and a low of 24. Cloudy skies with about a 20% chance of rain. Tomorrow you can expect snow and clouds with a high of 30 degrees and a low of 16 with a 60% chance of precipitation. It's expected to continue snowing with almost the same temperatures on Saturday. Sunday, the sun will start to peak out with snow showers stopping. The high will be 36 degrees with a low of 19, and Monday it will snow a bit more, and winds will speed up to 11 miles per hour with a high of 43 and a low of 21. Tuesday, the snow will end again with partly sunny skies. The high will be 39 and the low will be 17. That's all for today's weather segment. Information was gathered from the Weather Channel. And that's all for today. We just wanted to thank Damien Castile for our amazing theme music that's playing right... Now, we'd like to thank Thomas Taylor, Asher Korn, Stephanie Keel, Hannah Copeland, Addison Lambert, Griffin Ham, Jonathan Gillum, Ben Kruger, Ben Haney, Dixon Lawson, Peter Walk, Taylor Sandal, and the rest of the staff here at KCSU and Rocky Mountain Student Media. We couldn't do this without you. And I'd like to thank you, Coda. And I'd like to thank you, Ivy. And finally, we couldn't do this without you, you, dear listener. Thank you. And with that, We'll see you next time.